Peace and blessings, everyone. I'm Aziza, and welcome to another episode of Truth Be Bold. Today, we're going to get into a topic that I personally have not seen any other Muslim or other Muslim circles discuss in this way, and that is the Uyghur situation. And also, we will dovetail a little bit into the hypocrisy of the Western understanding of human rights, as it were. Today, I have a special guest with us, and that is Matthew Errett. He is the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is author of The Untold History of Canada, a book series, and Clash of the Two Americas. In 2019, he co-founded the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation as a nonprofit dedicated to promoting intercultural dialogue and a restoration of classical education. Mr. Errett, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Did I pronounce your name correctly? That was marvelous. Okay, great. Are you comfortable with Mr. Eret? You, you can, let's <laughs> go with Matthew for today. <laughs> All right, Mr. Matthew. Sure, okay, why not? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm new to this topic. Um, when it first hit the scene a couple of years ago, it was one of those things that I heard in passing. I didn't get into it too much, but just hearing it offhand, I'm like, uh, something's probably not right about that, but I don't have time to really research that. So I was looking into some of your work and there were just some things that clicked for me. So I'd really like you to get into the, um, the mainstream narrative of the Uyghur situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, most people here, I am in Canada. <clears throat> I think it's the same thing for many people in the United States, um, as well as Europe or any of the rules-based order parts of the world um, in the, the transatlantic community. Um, whenever hearing uh, the word Uyghur, we tend to have an association that's been put there because of the type of mainstream media uh, repetition. Um, which we get all over the place that that's a genocide that the the Chinese Communist Party is uh, committing a cultural genocide, if not a literal genocide on its Muslim population in the Xinjiang province. Um, that they're using slave labor. That's a constant uh, theme that's been reproduced uh, for cotton plantations, other things uh, as far as their their imperial Belt and Road Initiative. That's another one. Um, the we're, we're, we're generally trained to associate Belt and Road Initiative with an imperial ambition to replace the imperial uh, USA, which is on the, uh, the uh, descendancy uh, from its hegemony. Um, and the, the Chinese aspire to dominate the world, impose a technocratic socialistic uh, social credit system onto the world under a new colonialism of debt slavery and, uh, and rape and pillage of the poor people of the world, especially um, Muslims as well as Tibetan Buddhists um, in their own country. So that's sort of the mainstream. The Canadian government recently voted up a resolution unanimously uh, supporting this as well. Uh, the U.S. government, the Congress, the House, uh, the House and the Senate have done similar resolutions uh, taking on this view from both parties, uh, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, and many governments in Europe have, have done similar things. Um, as you have intimated to your audience just now, it's all a giant fraud. It's none of it is actually true when you scratch behind the narrative a little bit and you actually look at what is going on in China, especially in the Xinjiang region. Um, 
nothing is true about what we're being told. Um, would you like me to go into some of the the geopolitical dynamics behind it, or do you want to like unpack the the brainwashing a little bit more? Let's unpack the brainwashing a little more, because as as a Muslim, this narrative was uh, was fed to us. Okay, and I remember getting emails. I need to donate here. Oh, our brothers and sisters in China are, you know, suffering this and that. So I want to unpack this brainwashing because someone hearing this now, um, because emotives were used throughout all of this. You know, mm -hmm. you mentioned cotton. Okay, that's emo. That's an emotive yeah. <laughs> word yeah, for right. Americans. All right. Uh, you mentioned slave labor. Yeah. These these are key words here that. Uh, spark emotions and people are going to have a hard time hearing the factual information that you're presenting. So we need to take a step back, I think, and yeah, get yeah. into this brainwashing a little more. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think number one is that there, there, there's multiple, there's a multiple series of, of levels to approach this at the same time in the mind, right? The mind can do multiple things at the same time. So I think triangulating on the truth is important that way. Um, from the from the the macrocosm, I would just say the, the thing to keep in mind is that there's a clash of two paradigms. People have to have the context um, in their mind in order to make sense of the parts that are moving. Otherwise, with no context, you lose the forest for the trees, and you, you sort of lose your bearings. So the, the clash of paradigms right now is shaped around a, um, a a meltdown that has been underway for a number of years, but it is now accelerating under the guise of COVID from the unipolar uh, West, which has run roughshod over world peace for the past, you know, 70 plus years, at least. Um, on the other hand, you have an emergent set of nations in Eurasia with a Russia-China alliance as a bedrock for what has been called the Belt and Road Initiative. And within that, you have many different cultural dynamics. You have the, the Confucian Buddhist cultures of China. You have the Christian Orthodox cultures of uh, Eura or Russia, specifically in the Eurasian Economic Union, which is part of and has, has integrated. You have the, I mean, you have Iran as a big player who has jumped on board with a $500 billion uh, trade and security deal with China and with Russia. Um, and a growing number of other countries in Africa, as well as the Middle East, who have all recognized that there is a... a an ability to finally reconstruct their societies after years of uh, manipulation and destruction under geopolitical games. So you, you have these two opposing views. One is multipolar. One is based on long-term thinking, build big projects that benefit all players. The other one is unipolar. That's the one we live under mostly here in the West is basically unipolar. One, you know, uh, one decision point determines what every other uh, part does. And it's based on zero sum. Basically, the pie can only get smaller as the crumbs are distributed to less and less people. Um, so that's sort of the macrocosm. Um, and you have an economic meltdown in the Western banking system as an additional factor pushing this thing forward. So <clears throat> in terms of creating an enemy image, if you look at where is the sourcing, uh, there's uh, somebody named... Uh, or there, there's an organization called the Gray Zone, which has done some amazing reporting on the Uyghur issue and, and especially the source of the information of slave labor in Xinjiang and other things. Um, they found that the majority of it comes not from actual data, but from anecdotal evidence uh, that is sourced from primarily the World Uyghur Congress, which is openly run and funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. That's a CIA front. The head of the National Endowment for Democracy himself has even said 
that uh, we pretty much do everything the CIA used to do. Um, <laughs> and, it and it was set up in 1984 uh, to basically run uh, regime change operations under the guise of democracy movements. Um, it was big in Tiananmen Square to try to destabilize and run a coup in China in 1989. The Chinese got wise to that back then, and they kicked out um, the, the NED operations as well as the George Soros operations, which are inter intersected very deeply, George Soros's open society. They were all kicked out of China back in 1989, and I think that China was never really forgiven for that defiance. Um, other nations were not so smart and ended up suffering the effects of color revolutions and regime change under this new type of operation throughout the 1990s in the post-Soviet space, especially we've seen it uh, operate big time in Hong Kong more recently to try to, you know, organize mass protests of people carrying British and American flags in Hong Kong against the big bad Chinese. Um, and meanwhile, throwing Molotov cocktails and other things um, at a relatively unarmed police force. Uh, really just to try to create provocations, to induce, to try to tee or, you know, get the government to react overly strong in order to justify to the international community, look at the big bad Chinese government, how they're treating their poor people. Um, they, they did that in Libya. They did that in a variety of other places that took on different forms. And a lot of it uses either radical Nazis, as we saw in Ukraine in the 19, in 2004 or 2014, where there were, where there were orange revolutions. Again, people like Victoria Newland the, the uh, Secretary of State for Eurasian Affairs under Obama was you know, famously out there organizing the, the new regime in Ukraine and handing out little cupcakes to the protesters. But she was also part of like uh, a big program of sponsoring neo-Nazi fascists in Ukraine to do a lot of the dirty work that nobody else wanted to do to provoke the government to try to clamp down. Uh, many of these fascists found themselves in positions of high authority and power in Ukraine. In the case of the uh, the Muslim world, I mean, this is something that's been going on for a very long time, unfortunately, the, the use of radical uh, factions within the Islamic community. Uh, the Mujahideen, for example, under Zbigniew Brzezinski, received a, an immense amount of money through Operation Cyclone in the uh, late 70s, all the way throughout the 80s, in uh, creating uh, essentially a civil war in Afghanistan. With um, one of the favorite boogeymen at the helm, correct? You got it. So, so this is like, it's not a new thing. It's been going on for a long time. Um, it is not real. These are not real democracy movements, but the World Uyghur Congress, which is a source of a lot of the data, is, is again, directly a CIA front um, that is admitted by the head of the Congress itself. Um, the actual data, when you start looking at it, it comes again, like I said, from anecdotal evidence. It's not actually from anybody who, there's not real any hard evidence beyond that. You also have things like, Falun Gong, which is another CIA front. This emerged out of, and it's tied to Epoch Times as well, another major anti-Chinese uh, media voice inside of the United States and, the, and Canada. Um, this is something which emerged as sort of like a synthetic Scientology cult of Asia in the 19, early 80s. And the head of Falun Gong, um, who believes in an intergalactic battle of aliens uh, and and that he is somehow a messiah. He's actually not in China. He was kicked out of China uh, in the late 90s for doing something similar to what was being done or at least planning something similar uh, as what happened in 1989. And uh, now he's based in the United States under CIA protection. And his, his out outfit has, uh, is, is associated with tens of billions of dollars, if not more, with hundreds of different media outlets, including the Steve Bannon Network and others. So again, that's, again, 
a very questionable series of sources. There's a few others, uh, but they're all sort of of the same caliber. But when you actually look at what's going on on the ground in China, no, you actually have, I mean, <laughs> the fact that here we are in the West where we have a, a prison industrial complex where we use openly prison labor to manufacture goods for the military industrial complex, as well as other things, paying prisoners like as low as 27, 28 cents an hour in the United States. Um, Canada, it's not much better, a buck or two. Um, we're, we're saying because we're paying them a few cents on the hour, they're, they're paid labor. Um, and we're, we're all of a sudden telling China that they're bad because they're somehow using, China's not actually, China's actually paying. When you actually talk to people who have interviewed, who have gone to these different factories in Xinjiang, um, there is no such thing. Everyone is getting paid much more than they would if they were just staying in their underdeveloped uh, little villages. And just look at the statistics, like data-wise, the, the quality of life of people, the, the average GDP has increased 100-fold in only 25 years in uh, Xinjiang. I mean, a hundredfold increase of GDP per capita is huge. Life expectancy has increased massively uh, to 72 years. Just 50 years ago, it was 30 years of age. Um, you know, 20% of the kids in 1950 in Xinjiang were enrolled in school. Today, it's 99.9%. Um, there's so many like actual statistics demonstrating that you have the very opposite of what minority groups, whether it's the black minority groups or whether it's native groups in North America, have been facing, which is just a destruction of living standards of potential year to year. It's the very opposite, which is happening in China. So how is that a genocide? It's... But Mr. Matthew, China's yeah. communist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the argument. Everything well, you ironic. said doesn't matter. They're communists, so they're bad. But they're yeah, right. So I can, yeah, right. And that's, that's how you, we, we jest, but that's actually how people turn their brains off, right? They're trying, communist equals Nazi equals liar equals evil. So that's the devil. So why trust the devil? Um, yeah, no, it's really that it is simplistic. Um, but, I, but even there, like, you know, I, I, I make fun of people sometimes a little bit for their, their naivete because, I mean, China has one of the most robust private enterprise systems in the world. I mean, in terms of if you look at the array of private companies that are not affiliated with the state, um, it's it's astounding. And that they're like, I mean, building things, they're making their revenue off of actual construction of things that are based in reality, whether it's rail, whether it's water projects, um, they're benefiting people's lives as well as making a buck, which we're not doing. I mean, the majority of our companies that used to be valuable because they, they could produce something have been strangled to death in the West. So we can't even produce our own infrastructure like we used to when we used to build infrastructure many decades ago. We can't even do that anymore because the, the companies that used to do it are all gone now. We, those that do exist, they're either in basically services, uh, supporting a consumer economy, or they're in financial speculation. Um, the few that actually still sort of remained productive were only productive because you had people like Gaddafi in Libya, who was building the, the great man-made water project in, in Libya um, with, you know, SNC-Lavalin, a Canadian uh, construction company. It couldn't get, it wasn't, it didn't get any contracts in Canada because Canada is not building anything. It had to find its revenue by helping other countries who wanted to have a future build their projects. And what was the problem there? NATO decided to, you know, blow them back into the dark age um, in 2011. Um, so <laughs> there's there's a very different thing. You can There's a lot of money being made. There's a lot of private sector enterprise. There's a lot of patents. I mean, China has just um, gotten the world record for, uh, for patents. 
um, over the West. So you have all sorts of things that, that how is this a communist, like if people have this cartoonish idea of like this communist behemoth where there's no individualism or private enterprise, how do you have all of these fact, facts of life that are provable in front of your face? You know, it's uh, people don't want to look. I mean, that's the thing. People, cognitive dissonance is very strong. Right. It really is because you could present all of this to them and they'll just ignore it, even though this worst things are happening here and you're okay with it because it's your team. What that? Sorry about that. There's somebody at the door. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, I mean, I, I try to get across as well um, to people just to look at, I mean, just look at, how is China going through its um, goals of ending poverty? You know, like they're, they're very close to pretty much every goal that they put on the agenda over the past 40 years. They've systematically worked hard to accomplish them. Um, they've now gotten their, their official poverty ratings down to almost zero. Um, and they're doing it by systematically building up big projects. And in Xinjiang, here's another great example. You know, you, you have uh, reforestation where it, it was something like 15% forest coverage or green coverage in Xinjiang. There's a lot of desert there back in 20, 2000. Now it's up to 23% forest uh, coverage because of massive de-desertification, de water projects. You have the, um, the great uh, met, move south water north uh, water project, the biggest water project in human history, taking water where it floods far too much in the south of China and moving it to the uh, drought-ridden regions in the north and by building a few canals and moving, as you move it, there's a lot of electricity that's been created. Uh, flood controls has saved millions of lives. So much food has been saved. And, uh, and you've been able to green regions that had formerly been trapped under desert conditions in the north. Um, and a part of that involves moving some of that water by 2050 and, and final, finalizing the, the third phase, the first two are finished, into the Xinjiang uh, region which is just transformative on so many levels. It's increasing global biodiversity. Um, it is, I mean, creating jobs to the wazoo and also rail corridors are being built up. So transport interconnectivity rail corridors, like uh, you've got the, um, uh, the Lanju to Urumqi uh, railway that's, being, that's, that's currently underway, uh, 1700 kilometers of rail uh, all of the different towns in Xinjiang, which historically have all been severed, kind of like the native communities in the Arctic of Canada, they're, they're all disconnected. So you can't go from one native reserve to another one. There's no roads, no rail. It costs you $5,000 to get on a plane. So you're relatively in a, in a little cage, even though there's no physical cage there. And that's how a lot of the, the, the natives have been trapped under the reserve system for a very long time in North America. Um, and I say this just as contrast because, you know, we're the ones acting like we're morally righteous telling China how bad they are. But, you know, like, look at the type of conditions we have given us, you know, moral virtue signaling uh, Canadians, you know, uh, look at the conditions we, we've given to our natives where because of the, the hopelessness and despair, people have TV, but they don't have functional running water reliably for the most part. They, they don't have functional electricity without some generators. They don't have a right to determine their future or have jobs that are worth anything because they're all just being given money by the government to stay on the reservation. As soon as you leave your reservation, if you're able to, 
you're, you lose all of your, your, your paycheck, your, your government taxpayer money and everything. So they're incentivizing people just to stay in their little natural ecosystem that they're being told is your, is your natural state as a native. It's not to have be infected or poisoned by Western technology that is against your culture, which is, I think, the most racist thing to do to tell people that science and technology is anti your, your native culture. Um, so you can't benefit by any of these things because that's, that's not you. I mean, who, who are we to tell them what they, get, who they can or cannot have as, as part of their aspiration for building their future? I mean, technology is the effect of discovering laws of the universe, right? That we translate into science to make life better. That that the laws of the universe are everybody's to discover equally, you know? And these people are are suffering three times more suicides than the national average natives across the board, five times more by indigenous women um, than than the national average, 11 times more amongst Inuits, 11 times more national suicides in the Inuit population living in the Arctic than in the national average. That's huge. I mean, uh, opioid deaths, you know, they're 13 times more likely to die of opioid overdoses. Um, 47% of the, the native children are living in poverty. It, it's just, it's, it's just in 10 year life expectancy shorter. And, uh, and I mean, people like, you know, we're about to go into an election. Our government is celebrating itself for being just so protective of the diversity of the, of the natives, because we're, we're not, forcing them to change their ways you know they don't even have to learn french or english or anything like that they can learn they could just keep their their local languages and indeed increasingly many don't even know french or english so they have no ability to if they wanted to to have a job outside of the reserve they just can't um so it's again i think that this is like a new violent form of racism um to an extraordinarily bad degree Whereas China is actually saying, okay, you can keep your language and anybody living in the Xinjiang region can learn in schools and they do their own language, their own cultures, their own, their own music. They have cultural centers. You can go to shows that celebrate Xinjiang culture. Um, same thing in Tibet, um, where a lot of infrastructure is built, built up. But at the same time, they're also learning Chinese history, Chinese civics, um, you know, um, trades. A lot of trade schools are being are part of that. So to say that it's cultural genocide is just, it's, it's not true at all. They're, they're, they're just finding a way of blending both the uh, self-interest of China without bombing these countries. Because, the, I mean, these are people who have been trying to suffer just like the West under the Zbigniew Brzezinski policy of, you know, using the Islamic terror card on destabilizing nations. China shares a border with Afghanistan. You know, it's a 75 kilometer border. Um, They've had to deal with hundreds of cases of terrorist attacks since the 1990s. Now, unlike the West, they didn't go and bomb Afghanistan or any other country. They don't have Guantanamo Bays doing waterboarding. They're not, they chose not to do that. Instead, they're actually saying, okay, let's provide economic opportunity. Let's provide some serious education. And we're going to pay you really well, too, because they are getting paid really well, these people who are, who are working on these projects. Um, so it's, it's just, it's not... There's no cultural or other genocide. It's just not happening. So is that where the narrative of these re-education camps came from? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's just, they take satellite images um, of, you know, and it's again, very, very flaky associations. Hmm? Instead of prisons or just, you know, some random building. Or building with a wall around it. They're like, Mm -hmm. oh, look, that's obviously, you know, uh, a prison camp. It's like, that's not evidence to say that it's a prison camp. That's just a building with a wall around it. 
<laughs> um, and when you actually like talk to people who work in those buildings, they're like dormitories. In some cases for, yes, China has had re-education facilities for some of the most radicalized um, uh, Muslims in Xinjiang, but they're, they're not at all like Guantanamo. Like you're actually learning trades. You're, you're learning, they have, they have imams working there. Um, yes, you actually have, <laughs> you, you, it's just that you don't have the Saudi sponsored uh, Qurans. Uh, uh -oh. That's just the case. You don't have those. Um, it, it's, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, for anybody who wants to go to a mosque, there, I mean, Xinjiang has the record for the, the 24,800 religious institutions are in Xinjiang and 24,400 of them are mosques, 24,400 mosques in Xinjiang alone. And additionally, there's 59 Buddhist temples. There are 227 Protestant churches. There's another 26 Catholic churches. There's some uh, Taoist temples too, four or five. But I mean, like, you, you want to say that they're they're scrubbing out Islam uh, when there's like this many opportunities to study, uh, you know, the Quran. You can you can have your religious life easily satisfied in a variety of ways. And as far as yeah, the uh, the reeducation camps for people who have really been indoctrinated, who have fought, because many of the the people worked like you have the East Turkestan, many of the um, the, the fighters who have fought with uh, ISIS, with Al-Qaeda over the years in Afghanistan, in Syria, many of them have been East, they, they've called themselves part of the, I forget the exact name, the East Turkestan Liberation Group, um, which is essentially Xinjiang fighters who from China, they're just funneled in, trained in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and, um, and they just go back and forth. And then they carry out terrorist operations also in, in China. And they don't consider Xinjiang as part of China. They consider it as part of uh, uh, Turkestan. So they call it East Turkestan, not Xinjiang. Um, so for those who have actually got, you know, blood on their hands, years of like, you know, fighting under their belts in Syria against the Bashar al-Assad government and others. Um, yeah. For the most radicalized, they have been forced to spend more time in some of these facilities. It Now, it doesn't mean that they're being waterboarded or brainwashed with, with repetitive Barney tapes going on for, you know, two years at a time in isolation. It's not the same. It's not that at all. Um, and people are getting out and they're getting jobs and they're working and they, they're testifying. And you could watch videos, hundreds and hundreds of videos of people who have been through the process and have wonderful families and are building things and have now engineering skills, you know, like just you just got to look for the videos because you're not going to be given them if you just watch Fox News or CNN. You, you know, you got to like look a little bit harder, unfortunately. So question for you, what would you say to someone hearing this and they ask you, are you know, are you a shill for China? Why, why are you praising China? You make it sound like this is just a great place. You know, what about the, the human rights violations in the past? What would you say to that? How do, how do we know that you're not an agent for China, that you're, you're paid to say this stuff? Well, unfortunately, there's nothing you could say. I don't know what you could say as far as something to just satisfy somebody who's like really, really, <laughs> if they hear China and they think Nazi and they're just like that charged, I don't know if there's anything particular I can say. I could probably, even if they were like dropped into China, into Xinjiang, and they actually saw with their own eyes what right. was going on, they would still not see it. <laughs> um, that being said, I mean, I would, I would probably have to have a bit of a Socratic dialogue and ask them like, well, what specifically are you referring to? You're saying, you know, people are referring to all of the past Chinese cases of genocide. Um, 
are what examples can you bring to bear? And then can you prove that what you're saying is true? And then we could talk about it and then unpack it. <laughs> um, One world child policy. <laughs> whoa, that's that. Now that's interesting. That's interesting because here's the thing. Um, I just, I just wrote an article entitled uh, how China's Gorbachev project was flushed in 1989. And um, in it, I make the point that when China opened up in, in the seventies, there was um, a massive problem where they were essentially still in a purely agrarian society for the most part. There was very little industrialization in China. They're, they had also been suffering from a very, very scarring experience under a 10-year policy of the Cultural uh, Revolution, which was largely the, the brainchild of uh, the Gang of Four. Now, the Gang of Four were flatterers, uh, confidants of Mao, Mao Zedong. And uh, Mao Zedong is a bit of a... Um, complex character sometimes in history he did good things sometimes he was like so sometimes he was swayed by good advisors sometimes swayed to do terrible things there was not like one single Mao that i could find for the you know and there are virtues um but that that whole period from 66 to 76 um was was quite devastating um now when Mao died the protection that the Gang of Four needed was gone as well. And the Gang of Four had certain enemies around a figure named Zhou uh, Enlai, uh, who was the premier for a period. Zhou um, Enlai had a whole network built up of people who were op opponents to the Cultural Revolution. And as soon as Mao died, the Gang of Four were promptly put in prison. And Zhou uh, Enlai's main um, ally was Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping had the challenge now of figuring out how do we get China? How do we, how do we end hunger? How do we end poverty? How do we get China into the modern era and also heal from the wounds of the cultural revolution at the same time? So early on, it was difficult. There were a lot of openings by Henry Kissinger, who had recently in 1974, he put forth the uh, National Security Study Memorandum 200 as a policy document for USA, the CIA, and the, and the, basically U.S. foreign policy to say that instead of promoting economic development and infrastructure of poor countries, which the U.S. had formerly had, at least as part of its foreign policy outlook, that can no longer be acceptable. We have to fully now enforce population control and even depopulation in Bangladesh. And he, he names 15 target countries, but basically everybody who's part of the uh, um, either the non-aligned movement or the, the, the lesser developed, you know, the global south we're all subject to this. Mexico was a part of that. Uh, NSSM 400, uh, 200 was declassified in the 1990s. People can read this blood curdling document. It's disgusting. Uh, but he was the, also the, the guy who had opened up the door for China uh, to basically say, okay, China's, we're, we're going we're gonna to help to now make China the productive zone of the world. So where the West used to produce for itself, it had industries. The new, the new policy that Kissinger brought in when he came to power as Secretary of State under Nixon and then other trilateral commission members under Carter, like as Big Brzezinski came in, he, trilateral, he was a trilater trilateral commission uh, founder. Um, they pretty much took control under Carter, Ford and Nixon. And uh, the, the policy change was now China will be the, the poor producer zone of cheap labor for the world and a few other zones too would, would do the dirty work, but they would have to stay relatively fixed, immobile, and too poor to ever consume what they produced. But they would produce and then export things that we would now consume as our new consumer society model.
was created. That was the that was supposed to be the forever model. Now that's as we could see now, that's not exactly what happened. China had a some of China's leadership had a much more longer uh, view of things where they realized, okay, they had to play along with this for a while to learn techniques to have to basically model themselves off of the best elements of industrial success of the West, but with the intention of going farther, which we're now seeing finally happen decades later. Now, Kessinger thought he had the cat in the bag. So the policy was zero growth, especially for the poor. Um, one of the key guys who brought in the one-child policy was a devotee of uh, Song Jian. He, uh, he was a student of the Club of Rome which was a, an organization that began promoting limits to growth and the idea of computer model, using computer models to, to control populations and resources. So you, you plug in certain quantities of food, of food availability, uh, resource availability of targeted areas of the world or the world as a whole. And then based on rates of population growth, you could then forecast trends to see when you would have a population explosion and thus, that would educate governments, technocrats, to manage their, their future population crises by making action now through limiting population patterns, things like that. Um, so this guy, Song Jian, I think later on, he may have reformed his morality a little bit much later on. But this is a, a, a devotee of the Club of Rome doctrine. Um, Kissinger also put a lot of pressure on China to go along with this. On, so if they wanted to have access to the Western factories and, and, and productive base to learn how to do things, they had to do certain things as well. There were certain conditions. Um, one of those things was using China as a wedge, turning them against Russia, which in the 70s, there was a, a proxy war between China and, and Vietnam for about 30 days. Um, that was something that was launched the second Deng Xiaoping came back from meeting with the Trilateral Commission in Washington, was to create, and, and Vietnam was being uh, supported by the Soviets at the time under Brezhnev. Um, so they, they created this artificial conflict. So they were trying to get Russia and China to fight each other more and more. And China went along with some of these dumb things. The one child policy was another aspect of that. Um, it wasn't a Chinese policy, though. And China has increasingly, especially since they kicked out the Club of Rome um, thinkers, either took them out of power or in, like in the case of... Uh, uh, Zhao Ziyang, who was the, um, the Secretary General of uh, China in uh, 86, 87, 88, 89. He was the, the head of China. Like Xi, Jinping, Xi Jinping's position today, that was this guy, Zhao Ziyang. Zhao Ziyang was the main protector of all of these Club of Rome, Kissingerite thinkers. Mil he was bringing in Milton Friedman. He had a think tank with George Soros working together in China. And this is the head of China, right? The guy who's going to replace Deng Xiaoping. So this, this, this infestation went high up the charts and they were, they were the ones always um, allied with this new world order doctrine. They were always of the view that we had to get rid of nation states, create global systems of global population control and bring, bring about um, a great, you know, the fourth industrial, industrial revolution as it's now called. That's even what Zhao Ziyang even called it back then. It, it's not a new term. Um, so they were all purged. He was he was put into house arrest where he died 20 years later. He was never allowed to leave his house when he was removed from power. Uh, like I said earlier, Soros was purged. Many of these other thinkers were purged. However, China is still uh, healing from that mess of the infanticide that had to occur when you could only have one kid. And, and that's been, that was terrible. Now they finally moved it up. So you can have, as of 2016, they moved it up to two kids. Now they're moving it up to three kids. 
So they're finally like healing from that destruction that they did to themselves. And also keep in mind too, that was for the Han Chinese that had the one child policy. Uh, the Uyghur Muslims, um, other, other minority groups who are not Han had, no, had never had to submit to the one child policy. You could have four or five kids in Xinjiang the whole time. So that's another thing too, as a nuance, right? To just appreciate. Yeah. I'm speechless. This oh, is, that's, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, this is, this is a uh, fascinating stuff. And it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, because as, as a Westerner, like how many of us have actually been to China? Yeah, you I mean, know, it's one of those places that's off over there somewhere. We don't know what they do. It's a mystery. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, and, and it's ironic, right? Because like when you look at the governing principles of the Belt and Road Initiative and the, and the idea of win-win cooperation, which China has sort of set forth as its foreign policy doctrine, multipolarism, you know, which means basically the defense of sovereign nation states. Instead of having a world where you have one pole de determining everything, all the vectors of the system, you have multipoles, which means multiple sovereign nation states in constant dialogue, bilateral, tri trilateral arrangements. So that's what this that, Belt Road Initiative is about? Yeah, it's entirely based okay. on that, um, which is ironically also the, 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 the foundation of the United Nations Charter um, that was established in the wake of World War II. It was founded upon a certain principle of the respect, the sacred respect for sovereignty of nations, the non-intervention of one nation into another nation's affairs. Um, now that never really got a chance to express itself because the Cold War got in the way, which was an age of just insanity. Um, now it was though, the, it did represent some of the best aspects of the, the Western anti-imperial traditions. It was not like the League of Nations, for example, like the League of Nations was indeed a unipolar imperial uh, scam from 1919 when it was created all the way till it was just undermined by its own stupidity uh, later on. It was always based on no nation states can exist. No nation states can control their own banking affairs. That must be for private central banks. No nations can control their own military. They're too irresponsible and selfish. We need to have a supranational body and collective security. Article 11 of the League of Nations was collective security. One nation gets in a fight who's a member. All nations are obliged legally to jump in. Um, now, that was not in the UN Charter. The UN Charter was the very opposite. Uh, that, because that was based upon Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his allies who were anti-imperialists. And they, want, they didn't want to replace the British Empire, as we're often told in our, in our popular history books. They had programs set where you had Henry Wallace, uh, his, his, the vice president of the United States under Roosevelt, working uh, with the Russian foreign ministry, with the Chinese foreign ministry, uh, to create a U.S.-Russia-China foundation stone for the construction of the, the post-war age with no imperialism. They, they intended to wipe out the British Empire and all imperial activity forever. Um, and they, they actually had pro projects in Bretton Woods in 1944 for India, for basically taking the best examples of what the U.S. did under the New, the new Deal, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the, the rural electrification projects, all of these big, big, kind of like very Belt and Road Initiative projects that, that uh, rehabilitated the U.S., after the Great Depression, it was large-scale, long-term projects, 10 to 20 years in the future, um, very transformative. I mean, they, they wiped out Ill illiteracy in Tennessee, which went from 20% uh, illiteracy to something like, oh, sorry, 
80% illiteracy in the backwaters of Tennessee down to um, something like, like 6% illiteracy in the, by 1950. Um, quality of life, product, like all of these things were massively transformed upwardly in a very good way. And the idea was you had Kwame Nkrumah studying in the United States, studying the Tennessee Valley Authority, using that as his inspiration to go back to Africa for founding the Pan-African movement. Um, you had people in South America and Brazil and Argentina studying, coming to look at how is the U.S. able to do this and how do we bring this in tr and, and give this a, a Latin American experience. Same thing for Indian delegates as well as Chinese. So in Bretton Woods, you had all of these different parts of the world, delegates from India and China and everyone showcasing their grand designs for bringing the Tennessee Valley Authority experience to their countries. And it was fully supported by Harry Dexter White, um, the, Amer the head of the American delegation and, and Henry Morgenthau. And it was totally opposed by John Maynard Keynes and the British imperialists representing the Bank of England, who were totally in opposition. Their job was to defend the empire. Um, and so you had this major fight. And part of history that's just so valuable is to sort of give people a sense of the living soul of history. What were the fights, the sacrifices? Why did good things not happen when they were about to happen? What sabotaged that from the good from happening by artificial interventions or assassinations or coups? Because why did Roosevelt die in office before he could see through the, the program? Why did his enemies take over control of the White House under Truman? Why did they drop bombs unnecessarily on a, a basically defeated Japan? Why did that happen? Right? <laughs> why did the Cold War happen when you had this whole momentum for a U.S.-Russia-China alliance where Mao and uh, Zhou Enlai, as well as the Kuomintang, were all in agreement for bringing these big projects like the Yangtze Three Gorges Dam project, which has only been done now, you know, 60 years later, why didn't any of these things happen? And then you start seeing the drama and the reality and the truth of history. Um, and, and also you could appreciate what is, what is China tapping into, which is why it's so ironic that when you look at China from actually what it's doing and what are the historical dynamics that is, it is invoking, it's, it's, it's doing the best of what the United, the United States and the West used to do before we were born. <laughs> um, a lot of these people like John F. Kennedy and, and Roosevelt and a lot of the great American leaders who were assassinated, they were all operating on that idea that, you know, the world could only exist, humanity could only exist if we could have respect for other cultures and help everybody develop to their full capacities by, by helping them develop industrial full spectrum economies, right? No country would be stuck cash cropping, you know, just wheat and exporting it and staying poor. Everybody had the right to develop full spectrum economies so that they could all stand on their own two feet, not just be given fish for a day, but really learn how to fish. Um, that was always the case. And now that's, that's been forgotten, but that's what China is doing. I mean, if you look at what China is doing in, in when it, when it does business with African countries, um, there's a lot of, a lot of slander about debt slavery and debt traps, but no, I mean, they're, they're building, they're training engineers in Nigeria. They're actually building, creating thousands of engineers to create a new, you know, generation of people with skill sets, as well as build infrastructure. They're doing it um, here, building infrastructure here. In Morocco too? Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's different. You don't see that sort of thing from the IMF or the World Bank. We, we have been the debt slavers for, for 70 plus years. We, you know, we, we, made, we made the game, you know, <laughs> and that's been it. Like, yes, you can get a loan uh, to Brazil or to uh, name a poor country, right? Like, we'll give you a loan but on the condition that you don't use any of that money on building a dam or building infrastructure or, and you, you have to restructure your government just this way. And you have to 
set up this school that's going to be run by these Western corporations to indoctrinate your elite just this way. And then we'll give you the loan on these high interest rates, <laughs> which you'll never pay off. Um, so yeah, like we've just been pouring trillions of dollars into poor countries that have only been getting poorer and more enslaved to the West. Whereas China is actually going in there and saying, well, let's build projects. You, you have all this poverty. Let's end the poverty. Let's just make it happen. And if you've got some corruption practices in your country, let's just work with those. You got you want to do some bribes? Just, just do bribes. Just make the thing happen. And then, you know, they get attacked by George Soros's, you know, Human Rights Watch by saying, oh, look, they're, they're tolerating bad governance. They're just trying to build projects. How bad of them? It's like, where is this coming from? Like, Wow. So where does China fit in with uh, the one world government then? Are you, are you saying that they're kind of rogue or they have their own spin on it? Um, no country is pure. Mm-hmm. I mean, but some actually have leadership in power positions that want to have a future and that are not in line with the, uh, the great reset one world government agenda. So they're not completely uh, nihilistic is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's some countries that are not nihilistic. Um, and um, I think the thing with Eurasia, like, you know, it, if China was going at it alone right now, like China has, has said they don't want to be sacrificed on the altar. Um, they made that clear in 2009 originally when, um, you know, you had this COP, this COP, was it COP9 conference or COP14? I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I mix up my COPs, but basically in Copenhagen, a big climate conference under Sarkozy, Merkel, a lot of the Eurocrats. And the idea in 2009 was to create binding global uh, decarbonization treaties that would be enforceable by new global bodies uh, on top of nations. So not nations, because they're not responsible enough. Uh, So it was was essentially a push for a world government and uh, to say, okay, if you don't meet your climate or your your carbon reduction uh, quotas, you will be punished X, Y, and Z ways. Now that didn't happen. And why didn't it happen? Because it was sabotaged. Why was it sabotaged? Well, it was sabotaged because China and India together basically locked themselves in a room and didn't participate in any of the, the uh, discussions. <laughs> and the whole thing went to shit. Thank God. And everybody left Obama and Merkel and everybody left red-faced and angry. Um, but they sabotaged that world government conference such that today now, you know, 11 years later, they're gearing up now for this London conference, COP27 in November or December, where they're going to try to do what they failed to do back then. Now, the point is that China made its point clear that it will not sacrifice its sovereignty or its people on the altar of some Gaia myth, um, some new paganism. Um, and, uh, Call it what and it is, it, yeah. Straight up. It's, it's yeah, you're, you're, you're sacrificing human beings uh, to save what your mathematical models are telling you is some pristine version of nature, which it seems like nature doesn't behave the way the model, the models are even saying, because the models are saying, you know, what is natural is what is in a state of no change, pure, pure balance, like a mathematical formula. Right. But nature's always changing. Right. Like the deserts of, of the Sahara today, 5,000 years ago, were lush green zones. Then things happen geologically regarding our solar system. We don't know fully what happened. The water, most of it went under the desert. Now it's a desert in, you know, in some years time might be a green again, probably will. But the point is nature is always in a state of, of creative evolution of flux. 
and these computer model these people are like cultish zombies who are just like devotees of the computer model and they want to impose the shackles of the the computer formula onto humanity this light living non-linear vibrant humanity right which has these divine metaphysical principles of love and justice and and you know all these things you can't chart in a computer model it doesn't exist it's, it's very right. materialistic so china basically added put meat to the bones of their resistance in 2013 with a mass purge of a lot of the, because um, they did several purges um, from 1989 where there was the first mass purge. And that was a period where Zhao Ziyang, like I said, he was put into house arrest, but many of his allies, many of them escaped to the West and were given either Ivy League, Ivy League um, um, scholarships in Princeton, Harvard, other things. And these are most of the, the student provocateurs who did, did a lot of the greatest damage under Tiananmen Square which was never a ma massacre. That was like dozens and dozens of PLA, unarmed PLA soldiers got killed and burnt to death uh, under Tiananmen. But a lot of them were, were gotten out under Operation uh, Yellowbird by the MI6 and CIA through, through Hong Kong triads who got them onto, onto ships and planes sent to the United States and Canada where you had a mass wave of um, basically what became an, an anti-China uh, democracy movement in exile that began building up an infrastructure in the West. And then again, before Hong Kong was headed back to China in 1997, you had another mass wave because a lot of these, these oligarchs, these billionaires and, and other nefarious characters didn't know if they were going to be, who were all like based in Hong Kong, which is always a British hub of operations. It's called the CIA of the Pacific. They didn't know if the, the new Chinese government was going to clamp down and put them in prison upon getting Hong Kong back after so, so many years. So they all you know, ex made an exodus again to mostly Canada and, and uh, the United States. And then, so there was another exodus that happened around 2012 when Xi Jinping came in and it became clear that there was gonna be another anti-corruption crackdown, which there was, and there continues to be, where tens of thousands of people who have been uh, far too influenced, let's just say, by um, the Western unipolar worldview, this, you know, uh, have, have gone to jail. So there's purges of, you know, and, and Xi Jinping gave, uh, put meat on the bones of this, of this resistance by unveiling the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, October or September in, uh, in Kazakhstan. And, uh, and since then, it's taken on a vibrant new life. It's, a, it's not a formula. You know, it's, it's, there's a general idea of building and reviving the old trade corridors from east to west that used to animate much of human civilization, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, but utilizing new technologies and techniques. But additionally, it's not just simply a trade of goods and services uh, east-west. Now it also involves multiple different uh, rail corridors. It's very much driven by high-speed rail orientations. Even maglev rail is being built up in China with branches throughout the Middle East, through Russia, into the Arctic now where you have the Polar Silk Road. Um, it involves new shipping corridors to, to alleviate the Straits of Malacca or Suez, which are very congested, overly congested and very controlled. And now instead you have, with Russia's help, building up a, a new maritime polar shipping zone, which also cuts about 10 days of shipping between goods from China to, uh, to uh, Rotterdam. Um, Xinjiang plays a, a very important role as a hub, as it did 2,000 years ago. It does still again today. Uh, it plays a massive role. With, uh, with rail corridors going um, from East China through Xinjiang all the way to Rotterdam. It's about 11,000 kilometers of, uh, of transit um, that are transforming everything along the way, right? All of these different isolated 
towns are all now interconnected with roads and rail. You have high-speed rail now being finalized in Xinjiang. We have zero in Canada. They've already got thousands of kilometers being built up high-speed. I mean, we're talking like 200 to 400 kilometers an hour uh, speeds, um, very advanced stuff. And also there's branches all over uh, Africa, which on the surface seems sort of isolated, you know, like a project in Kenya, a project in South Africa, a project here, a project in Morocco. Pro but you're actually seeing that this is all part of a, a synergistic orientation of interconnectivity, which again, when you compare it to the, the British imperial policy in Africa, it's different because yes, you could say the British built rail in Africa, but if you look at all of the rail that was built up in Africa, it was always straight from the mines to the ports. So it was only extraction oriented and it was consciously designed to have incompatible gauges. So from East to West Africa, all of the rail, it's, it's all designed calculated to, to be incompatible so that no, no policy could ever connect Africa and, and build it as a, a, a cohesive unity. And that's what the British and the Belgians and the French all consciously did together was to keep Africa divided and easy to conquer. Um, so China's doing the opposite. They're, they're making sure all of the gauges is compatible and anybody who wants to play a role, it's not purely altruistic. It's not, it's not, it's not charity, but they are, they are taking like usually the brunt of the cost, like through the China import export bank, other state banks, which are not privately run because China never got rid of its, its uh, state banking system. Every other country adopted wow. private central banking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that gave it a massive amount of freedom and, 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 and flexibility to, uh, as a weapon against this financier oligarchy. Russia, for example, has good leadership under Putin politically and militarily. So Putin has been able to subvert a lot of the, the regime change agendas, whether it's in Syria or, uh, or other places. Um, but Putin has never been allowed to have access or control of the, the economy. It's still run by the IMF. In, in large measure, and many of the people who were put in power in Russia during the terrible period of the 1990s, when everything was privatized, um, that they, a lot of these influences still remain, unfortunately, very powerful. There has been slow subversions of elements of, of this Russian oligarchy and their, their Western controllers. There's been, there has been subver subversion by the patriots of Russia who want to work and integrate with China. But it's still, they don't have nearly the, the same amount of, of uh, power, the, the, the patriots, I mean, than their Chinese counterparts. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a factor. But, but, but it's, again, it's not like angelic. Like, I'm not trying to say, like, you've got these angelic heroes out to save the world. It's just that you have certain people who are human beings, fundamentally, with morality. And they recognize that one path is going to lead us to a new global dark age with no future at all under a global enslavement and a destruction of their entire thousands of years of, of cultural experience, which some, you know, and they, they're not willing to allow that to happen. And they're, they're moving on a variety of levels to create new conditions whereby an alternative can be created, which is more in the self-interest of all players, including us, like China and, and China doesn't want to be our enemy. Ultimately, they've made so many offers to uh, for the West to join the Belt and Road projects. They're they're like they've been saying, you know, for since 2013, again and again. I've got hundreds of examples of Chinese ambassadors and Xi Jinping himself just saying, "Let's just work together. Let's let's build infrastructure together. Let's put our differences aside and just you want to make money here. Let's do this thing. We've got government guarantees that we're going to build this giant project, you know, here or here or here or here." 
let's you'll make a lot of money and you might even find that we can live together doing this and uh unfortunately that hasn't gone over so well in recent uh <laughs> in the recent months and they're being encircled right you keep in mind look at what the u.s military has been doing around russia and china and it's very clear what the policy is they, they've been encircling russia and china with a an a full spectrum dominance doctrine of, uh, of what's called an anti-ballistic missile shield with uh, all sorts of uh, military operations in Japan, in the Philippines, in South Korea with THAAD missiles. Uh, Russia's southern perimeter it has seen a massive NATO expansion with the idea that the West could launch a first strike to destroy the retaliatory capabilities of Russia or China so that they could feasibly have a contained limited nuclear war and keep it within Eurasia with, with very few, you know, uh, sacrifices on the outskirts. Um, that's, that's been what's been dominating us and well, Anglo-American thinking now for since 2004, five. Um, and also for the Arctic, there's a big program to militarize the Arctic too. Um, increasingly now as well, you have things like the uh, cyber polygon. So the world economic forum is, is continuously now, introducing these war game scenarios, kind of like mm -hmm. what they did for event 201 um, in 2019. They're now also, you're seeing this very disturbing array of um, cyber terrorism scenarios where they're saying like, let's look at, let's play out what this, what would happen if a, um, um, a tyrannical, you know, rogue nation state, let's say a China were to, or Russia were to, uh, were to, take out the the western internet you know or destroy all their satellites and destroy the internet and electricity grids uh how would we respond and they're they're playing these things out almost as if to provoke a scenario which is usually what happens before 9-11 or other things right. Mm -hmm. right we've heard this story before <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm a little i, I get kind of goosebumps when i see stuff like that in a bad way and uh and so i think that that's that's a danger as well that that they're actually looking at creating a new inside job type of, you know, um, false flag to, uh, to launch potentially um, a war on Russia or China using an unexpected fake attack. Um, so that's, and, and they, and it makes sense that they're, that they're doing this. They're so desperate to do this because the financial system that they need to control their victims is in a state of implosion. So they have a limited amount of time before the system financially melts down to destroy their, their opposing, the thing that they're afraid of, which is this Eurasian economic partnership. They have to destroy that because if they blow up their system, when this other thing is not destroyed and it's actually growing in a vibrant way, that other system is going to take over. And even Bruno Le Maire, the former uh, finance minister of France, even said it in 2019, he said, if we cannot uh, save, uh, save the Bretton Woods system, the, then he said the, the Chinese system uh, the Belt and Road will become the new world order, which is unacceptable. And that's his <laughs> words. Like, so they are afraid of that. Two things. So I think you really got to the heart of the, the Great Reset with mm. what you just said. And it is. Yeah. yeah. And the second part of that is to tie it in with the Uyghurs. Was that was that an attempt to just further damage the uh, the image of China in the West? Yeah, it's okay. it's sort of it's it's part of the same thing that they did with uh, you know they they they're pretty much using the same model and tweaking it. Whether propaganda it's, operation, 
yeah, whether it's China cracking down on their, their Tibetan Buddhists or the Uyghurs or uh, the Hong Kong uh, democracy movement or the Taiwanese democracy movements who just want independence uh, of, of big bad China. It's sort of the, they just tweak these narratives to just take any the empire used to have the saying, right? Imperialists, like I think Lord Palmerston said at first, that the empire has no permanent friends, only permanent interests. Mm. And, and so their technique is to always find a weak grouping, an, an ethnic group um, within your enemy territory and act like you are its friend and inflame and support it so that until it, until it serves its purpose and then you could throw it away like a silkworm, like a farmer who, who you know, yeah. uses up the silkworm, you throw away the silkworm, you, you light it on fire. And that's what they've always been doing to ethnic, smaller ethnic groups. You just create and promote division, support their, <laughs> their, uh, their, their nationalist sentiments with the goal of, of breaking oh, up. <laughs> oh, hey, we, got, we have a visitor. Yeah, back again. Mama, cool. mama, mama. Shh. I got the video. Did I see a hand coming from the left and the right? Yes. <laughs> Okay, you're being flanked. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's pretty much it. It's it's divide to conquer stuff, and that's the Xinjiang thing. It's just divide to conquer. the The West doesn't care about Muslims. They're they don't, uh, no. as we've seen. Right? <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. I can't even say that with a, with a straight face. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're like trying to find like one example. Uh, yeah. I mean, so people got upset with Donald Trump, you know, wanting to ban Muslim countries. So that's one. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that makes me think of the whole Afghanistan situation. We'll have to have you come back on and talk about that some other time. Yeah, we could, we could definitely impact that. Sure. But what, what advice would you give to people? who are just learning about this kind of stuff and they kind of want to expand their knowledge because even I see people who are in the quote unquote truth movement have fallen for this, this China bad narrative. Sure. Um, well, I mean, <clears throat> they, they, they have to use, the, and there are some good resources that are available online. Um, I think that some decent websites that do consistently good coverage a very balanced, honest assessment of, of geopolitical affairs is, uh, um, you know, you, you have, uh, I mentioned the gray zone has done remarkable reporting on this. Uh, you have you know, the Saker, you have, if, if you just look at some of the, the news outlets that are not CNN, like, look, you know, if you think of Russia and China as the enemies, well, just start looking at some of what the enemy <laughs> you think of as the enemy is putting out. And just judge to see, are they taking into consideration um, facts that are truthful that you can discover to be true? So look at Sputnik for a few weeks, Sputnik uh, News, look at RT, uh, look at CGTN, look at uh, Global Times, and just compare it to the type of, of material that is being produced by CNN right. or uh, you know NPR radio or whatever that you're, you're, you tend to listen to. Just compare it and, uh, and just, again, keep in your mind's eye what is what is the reality that your mind can can come to discover and then match up and see who who passes the litmus test and who is ignoring big swaths of reality um i have two websites that i would recommend people check out that i maintain with my wife um one of them is called canadian patriot review 
Um, so it's canadianpatriot.org, O-R-G. And the other one is Rising Tide Foundation, um, which is risingtidefoundation.net. And we've got YouTube channels, uh, a, a lot of material we produce on a regular basis. We have experts who uh, deliver uh, lectures every week that we curate. Um, on a variety of topics, geopolitical, history, philosophy, arts, you name it. So uh, if people want to know more about that, that's on this, under the symposium section of the, the Rising Tide site. And um, if they want to get involved or just listen live to one of these presentations, because they happen every Sunday, they can do that by uh, just sending an email to info at risingtidefoundation.net. Um, but really, it's just a question of personal voyage of discovery. You know, you, you, people have to just take on the responsibility of saying, I'm going, I'm going to now not be spoon fed information from anybody. I'm going to start actively searching with a more active mindset. And I'm going to act like write my own questions down when I see a paradox and then resolve my paradox by doing some research. You know, if somebody says something which is not proven, whether it's about COVID or whether it's about terrorism or whatever, if they're using some inflammatory statement that is kind of obviously supposed to get some fear out of me, I got to see, okay, what sources are they citing to justify their claims? And if I find those sources, you're often going to find that the, the, whether it's a government report that you can just get from the government website, usually these things are available, or whether it's a, a, an NGO that did a report uh, or, or a, an, something in academia that the, the, the news article is citing, usually you'll find that the evidence in that article has nothing to do with the claims that they're making. Or that there's no, there is no such report or evidence at all. Period. Sometimes you'll just see, you'll when you start piercing back, the you know the 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 veils, you'll find that behind it there is just like some dude, uh, in in Turkey who made some statement about Xinjiang, who has no nothing to do with anything, no basis of any evidence whatsoever, right? Who just said something, like, you know. So just do people have to just do a bit more work than they're used to doing on research. It doesn't take much to see the whole narrative fall apart once you just start thinking for yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. True, it's that, true, and then and then you develop a good instinct. Sorry, I said that first step can be hard for many people, though. <laughs> yeah, it's that it's that um, getting comfortable with cognitive dissonance. You got to sort mm -hmm. of lean into the uh, the unknown a little bit because a lot of people like we're trained, I think, um, to. We're, we're, we're chastised in school if we get the wrong answers. We're, we're almost shamed, I think, at an, too early of an age to, to guess, to make a guess in school or something and be wrong. So increasingly people are, are, are rewarded for having the right answers and they're not really encouraged to hypothesize, play around with an idea, not be given an answer, right? A good teacher usually doesn't give an answer to students. A good teacher is usually kind of playful. It, it, they awake the they awaken the question of like, you know, I don't know, like Earth Earth seems to be flat on the surface, but yet two thousand years ago it was discovered by somebody in Alexandria, uh, Egypt, that it was around, and they were able to calculate its circumference within like fifty kilometers of of uh, error. How did that, how did that happen? They didn't have satellites. They didn't have anything. So how is one person with a buddy? you know, 20 miles above him uh, on, in longitude, how were, how were they able to set something up to figure that out rather than just tell a student, like, you know, this is the circumference of the earth and this is, you know, it's, it's like, think about it. Like, that's a paradox. A, a kid can figure it out. If you just think about it, a stick, a shadow, 
the light cast by the sun, what type of shadow it's ca is cast from the two different positions so close together. And you could extrapolate a solution concept on your own. Like the kids can figure it out. And then that's real knowledge that the kid can have. They, they, they can own that. And, um, but that means that the kid has to be sort of comfortable going into uh, the unknown, you know, like get into your uncomfortable zone of the I don't know area. And the more you have confidence leaping into the unknown, the more you can use that as you mature in everything, what, whatever you're, you're looking at. And it really helps for history and politics, which is all about veils and shadows and misinformation. You know, you've got to be able to, to use some of that method to, to like question your own assumptions all the time. Like I, I, I thought there was this, this was true, but if this is true, then this thing I'm seeing right now is, is, doesn't make any sense. So either, either this thing I'm seeing is just intrinsically insane or absurd, <laughs> or there's something about how I'm thinking, which I have to reevaluate to resolve that and make, make this thing I'm looking at make sense. Right. So you have to always be thinking about thinking and that self-reflexivity is it helps to read Plato dialogues. Plato is all about getting people to be comfortable thinking about their, their own, their own axioms and, and, you know, resolving, generating better thoughts that resolve paradoxes. So, um, yeah, it's more of a mind game. And that's what the empire thinks, because the empire knows that primarily above the geopolitical, and mi the military and banking side of things, there's a, the fundamental battle is for the mind and the soul of the people who's mm -hmm. controlling the cultural dynamics, right? Um, who's controlling the arts, the, the, the aesthetical uh, conditions of the soul in which the wow. soul it grows up in and is either shaped, you know, is misshapen by or is made more beautiful, depending on what type, like, you know, tell me that Mozart's Requiem, you know, some people actually will say that Mozart's Requiem is just as beautiful as Lady Gaga's, I was born that way, you know? I, like if, I, if I hope you just, <laughs> just make that up. No, no, I mean, there, there's people who say like art, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Whether it's a satanic, uh, a satanic sacrifice or whether it's a, uh, a, a, a beautiful uh, piece of classical music or something. It's all the same thing. If you think it's beautiful, that, that's just you. It's like, wait a minute. There might be higher objective standards of ugliness and beauty that have something maybe to do with lies and truth that you can develop, develop your soul around that helps you uh, in the pursuit of wisdom. And, uh, and that's part of, I think, the liberal brainwashing of our, of our own era today is, you know, People have, have lost the ability to judge right and wrong. They say there is no such thing. It's fascist mm. of you to say that there is such a thing as truth because that means that all of the other opinions are not true, which is a tyrannical thing to, for you to do. You're, you're persecuting people who think other than you. It's like, well, no, not really. Do they, do they, are they believing in lies? If they are, then they can be led through reason, which we have to presume they have access to, to know that what they're thinking is not true. You don't have to kill them, right? <laughs> but liberalism says no. Yeah, and these are shaped as intellectual arguments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can go to Wikipedia and just type in truth and just see like how many defi definitions of truth are, are exist. You know, you got subjective eco truth and you got this other theory of truth and this other theory of truth. And it's like, well, how can you have all these different theories of truth? We're talking about truth. Like what you, you, need, you need to. So yeah, they're all wrapped in, in this fake intellectualism, um, which is again, I think this is this is kind of like why empires tend to collapse as well. Like if you look at the Roman Empire, in many ways, it uh, it was based on a form of liberalism. 
Mm. Because culturally you could have, even though it was obviously like (laughs) a very evil empire that used slavery, it subdued all of, you know, it was like growing like a parasite on the earth, subduing weaker and weaker people to feed the capital all the time and, and keeping the people in the capital fed on bread and circuses, you know, watching, watching, uh, you know, Christians getting thrown to lions and shit um, for entertainment. Uh, that, that was just the way, and they had to do, they managed themselves for a long time that way, but religiously, culturally, it was shaped around pagan cults. And you could, you could worship this deity or this deity or this deity in the pantheon. And it had its own local priesthood with its, with its own rituals and mystery religions associated with each cult. And each one was sanctioned by the emperor. You know, you had your, you had, you had to be sanctioned and, uh, and you could have as many, many, uh, views of, of God and religion and, and truth as possible. But that's what made the monotheistic religion so dangerous to the empire. Um, whether it's Christianity or Islam or even Judaism is that they, they, they were not liberal. They were like, no, we don't believe in, in a poly universe of many gods and many causes and many truths. We're like, no, there, there's one God, one truth. And it took on whether it's, you know, Judaism or Christianity or Islam. Um, there's different, you know, it takes on different expression, but it's ultimately there was commonalities that the empire could not tolerate. It just, it's because it, it, it's liberal. Ultimately, they, they're just like, whatever goes, whatever goes, you just, you know, and, and the monotheistic religions didn't accept that. It was, in, it was, they recognized that that was wrong. Um, so today we're sort of in the similar thing, you know, and, and people like Aldous Huxley or, or Timothy Leary, they had, Timothy Leary talks about how he and Aldous Huxley were talking in the uh, early 60s about how the time has come for a new um, scientific paganism mm-hmm. to replace uh, monotheism. Right. And that was, these are the gurus of the LSD culture, of the counterculture. And, and they were, I mean, look at what they were a part of, right? Like Timothy Leary said, the CIA is the best thing in the world because he knew that the CIA was bringing in the LSD and that he was a part of that. But he was like, that, they're just enlightened. I love it, <laughs> you know, and Aldous Huxley always, whether it was his doors of perception or whether it was Brave New World, this guy was a cultural influence to a huge degree. He was part of a complex with his brother, Julian Huxley, who, who was the founder of transhumanism, who was the, the, the founder of UNESCO, uh, who basically created the world ecology movements under, uh, you know, he, he co-created the, the World Wildlife Fund for Nature. Julian Huxley with, with Prince Bernhard, the founder of the Bilderberger Group, and Prince Philip. They created the World Wildlife Fund for Nature um, <laughs> as a way to replace the ethic of human, human beings changing, uh, you know, ending imperialism. Because the, the idea used to be human beings had to fight imperialism to emancipate ourselves to be made because we're made in the image of the creator and, and empires deny that. And that ethic had to be scrapped in favor of defend nature from humans. Mm-hmm. And that became what we did to our natives. That's why all of our natives are, are just like locked into these like ecosystem cages where we're, t- they're, we're, you know, we tell them at an early age in the West that again, you know, we, we talked about this at the beginning and that's why I'm kind of like wrapping it up there, but that you're, you're part of nature. You are part of the balance, the sacred balance. That's your culture. And it's to not change, to just adapt to the, the fixed state of nature. And that became the new imperialism. And this is called it's, diversity. It's called diversity. <laughs> it's called diversity. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's critical race theory. It's, it's That's what's underlying the reforms in the education system. Uh, that says everything about Western culture, good or bad, right? It's all mm-hmm. evil. 
right. dead white European males. They're mm -hmm. all equally bad because there were because there were bad dead white European males. They were all bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and thus, you just need to look at relevant thinkers who acknowledge the nihilism of, of reality of, of, you know, humanity of the read Sartre, read Nietzsche, don't read Dante, don't read, uh, you know, <laughs> anybody who is not an existentialist, because they're not relevant. <laughs> and you bring up an interesting point, because I've noticed they've taken historical figures now, and resurrected them kind of gave them this, this liberal image. Uh, like and, well, I, I got a few ideas, but I would like to know who, who are you thinking about. <laughs> well, um, Malcolm X, I, I've noticed mm. they've tried to make him this pop cultural icon and mm. align him with these Black Lives Matters things, put in this, um, this LGBTQ narrative with him. It's really disgusting. And mm. without even taking, you know, his work his legacy as, as the example. Let's just take his image. Let's take a few of the things he said out of context. Yeah, yeah. And put it into this liberal framework. I've seen the, the same thing with uh, James Baldwin. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now he's like- yeah, give, give him the, the Che Guevara treatment. Right, like he's this LGBTQ icon now. Uh, Putting his work aside, Let's spin it and put him here. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah right. Well, it's it's wild. They eh? like I know Frederick Douglass too. His name is getting yes, is getting another one dragged through the mud. Like people don't actually look at what this man's life was, mm -hmm. and he's being treated like uh, you know, like there, there's there's extracts from his famous speech on the fourth. What is the uh the fourth of July to a slave, which is a powerful speech. Yes. Um, but if you look at the whole thing, Frederick Douglass is both condemning the hypocrisy in the United States, but at the same time, he's celebrating the, the, the victory over racism and, and, and slavery of the, the Confederate slave power after the Civil War. And um, I mean, Douglas's whole life was devoted to emancipation for all humanity. And he didn't- Which is he, often overlooked. Yeah, exactly. Like. <laughs> He, he broke with, uh, what's the name, William Lloyd Garrison, you know, when William Lloyd Garrison, who was originally a, a, a big abolitionist, um, Garrison wanted to dissolve the, the Union. He basically was like a, 16, uh, a 1619 project uh, devotee back in the 19th century. Garrison was of the view that America was intrinsically evil. The Constitution and Declaration of Independence were intrinsically evil. There was nothing good to be found. And Douglas was working with him for a few years, you know, giving speeches and, and promoting uh, freedom um, and the e and just basically educating people on the evils of slavery. And then he was like, at one moment, I, I, I realized I never actually read the Constitution or Declaration. So he sat down and he actually started reading them. And he's like, you know, there's actually nothing in here that mandates slavery. I was told I always thought that, but I never read it. Now I realize that there's actually the, 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 the key to solving slavery is located in actually saving the union, which is why he ended up working with Lincoln and recruiting uh, a lot of the, the black soldiers to fight against the slave power and save the union. Um, and, and Frederick Douglass, I mean, if you read his writings, this guy understood the global empire really well. He understood how the British, British intelligence were working with the Confederate powers to, to destroy the, the US from within. Um, and he, was, he, was a, he, he fought free trade, he fought for protectionism. He became the ambassador to Haiti where he tried to help Haiti 
uh, develop um, industrially, which ultimately failed due to sabotage, which he didn't understand at the time. Um, but yeah, like there's these rich, rich content in these people's lives, which is all being overlooked for basically just taking little snippets, like you said about Malcolm X or James Baldwin out of context and just subvert or utilizing it for these um, modern cultural revolutionaries who want to just overturn all of Western civilization, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's the same thing with, you know, tearing down these statues everywhere. Yeah, they, t- they tore down uh, in Boston, they tore down a statue of Frederick Douglass. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Actually, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I sympathize. There's some evil people who I, I, I think their statue should be taken down. But there's a way of doing it as well in, a, in, a, in an organic way, which doesn't involve the path that that the anarchist mob path that's being taken on right now of just hate and and just mob rule which is easy to work to to herd as a social engineer they they like it when people get into right mob mob rage fits because now you can you can move that as like mm-hmm. a, a battering ram against whatever you want to destroy usually the nation or some you know and uh and that's never good that's- well it's all reactionary and it's for optics. You tearing down a statue doesn't fix the problem. You'll still be no, angry exactly. tomorrow and, you know, there will still be injustice. So what did you accomplish? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, if anything, I think that a lot of these statues should be moved in a, in a, in a way where you could have like a museum with history lessons over like why, <laughs> why history happened. And here's a statue of this slave owner of like Albert Pike. Let's mm-hmm. learn about Albert Pike, you know, like, how did he found the KKK? What did he do to try to, right. you know, destroy the union in, in that period and 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 run, uh, reform the, you know, Scottish Rite Freemasonry? Um, right. What was his know. connection to Giuseppe Mazzini? Let's talk about that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. no, we don't yeah, want to do make that. it like a, a real educational museum experience. Yeah. You know, like you don't have to tear these statues down. A lot of people put good work into these statues. Might as well uh, <laughs> learn something useful. Yeah, exactly. So with that, I have one final question for you just to kind of tie everything together here. Sure. What do you see happening, you know, in the next couple of years, you know, with the, the current trajectory that we're on globally, mm. what, what do you see happening? You know, you mentioned a lot of things about China, the direction they're going, uh, how the West is riding on its own fumes at this point. So what do you see? What do you see the culmination of all of this? It's a good question. Um, I I think that currently the the hope for humanity, if we're going to have a future that does not involve us sliding back into a uh, a, a new dark age, which I do see is very real. I mean, we mm-hmm. haven't had one in a long time. Um, the only way we could avoid that is by the success of the ever-growing Belt and Road Initiative and the Eurasian, the Greater Eurasian Partnership, um, which does involve 140 countries who have signed on in different ways to the BRI framework. It's a totally different banking system. It's a different culture. It's a different set of values, even though a lot of the words being used overlap with the words we use in the, the, the dying transatlantic. If there is going to be any chance for us, it's not going to be just because we organize against the Great Reset, which obviously these are things that are happening, but what's lacking, I've been to a few of these protests, um, you know, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine uh, passport things. And the, it's good that they're happening, but what's lacking is any, 
very little at least sense of geostrategic strategy because mm. I don't think that there's any internal solution within Canada or within many of the European countries that are largely captured. Uh, there are maybe a bit more, there's a bit more resistance in a confused way in the United States where states have a lot of, a lot more authority than in many of the Commonwealth countries uh, to, to act independently within limits. Um, now, I, I'm against this, the, the union dissolving itself. I was for Lincoln, but at the same time, it's like um, there needs to, they cannot continue to, all right, let me, let me word it this way. Many of the people who are the most sensitive to the evil of the one world government depopulation agenda, which is coming onto us in the West, tend to have also fallen prey to the idea that the cause of all of your problems is China. Absolutely no, correct. And so there, not everybody is like that, but many are. And that's, there's a lot of psyops, which has been put yeah. there to redirect them, their, their fear and hate from the real villain behind the scenes, which is based in the city of London and British intelligence more than anything else. And, and to redirect it towards their salvation. Because what China is doing on a myriad of levels, as anybody who's listened to our conversation to this point must have as an idea is the water to the fire that is on us right now. Um, China offers us the only viable pathway and they want to help us rebuild our infrastructure and other things. Um, so we need to have people in the West who recognize that top-down strategy and are able to start making maneuvers and demanding policy changes that bring us into synergy with that Eurasian orientation for progress. To the degree that we don't and we continue to treat Russia or China as the enemy, um, I think we're doomed. I don't, I mean, they, these countries might survive and might thrive and maybe in coming generations we might have a chance. But based on where the power structures are located currently, um, there's not a lot there. You know, you need to have a pro-BRI, pro-development pro orientation. Yeah, absolutely. That balance of power, that shift is here. It's at the doorstep. So yes. yeah, I think that's a very astute analysis. Thank you for that. Sure. Yeah. I, I wish I could offer a little bit more edifying uh, final words, but that's, you know, oh, for the time great. being, that's what I got. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Where can anybody purchase your books if they're interested? Oh yeah, sure. Well, yeah, if they go to, I mentioned a Canadian Patriot.org. Okay. Um, they see the first thing that they'll see is buy the books. You can click on that. And then all five of my books are available. The newest one is uh, the clash of the two Americas volume one volume two is going to be out in a couple of months, maybe even sooner uh, the unfinished symphony. Um, so yeah, that, that's all available. Um, either you can pick it up on Amazon or if you want to just buy directly through me, just send me an email. It's it's, you can contact me through the website or rising tide foundation.net is an, is the website. I, uh, the organization I, I run with my wife, Cynthia, who you might even like to have on as a guest. She's done some wonderful writing on uh, on history, JFK, Vietnam, you name it. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll see some stuff. Cool. Okay. Well, Mr. Matthew Aaron, thank you so much. This has been very informative and I think it's going to upset a lot of people, but I don't care because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's about getting the information out there and, you know, uh, forcing people to think a little bit. I relish cognitive dissonance if it's done for the right reasons. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All right, All right. Thank you so much. Take care. My pleasure. You too. Bye.